You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Pitch to Judge, and he hits one to left. It is high. It is far. It is gone. It is a Judgian blast. Aaron Judge adds to his major league leading RBIs and home runs with a mammoth two-run home run. All rise. Here comes the Judge. And they are all rising. This place is bedlam. This is amazing. Welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardians beat reporter for MLB.com, and the lovely Sarah Langs, researcher and reporter for MLB.com as well. Sarah, I know last week we had so many exciting things to talk about. We were actually together to record this podcast, so that was really, really fun. Sucks to have to be looking at you through a screen now, but I'll take what I can get. Uh, Still exciting things, maybe not as uh, many... Uh, let's say fun, intimate moments this week as we had to choose from uh, last week. But there's a lot going on in baseball right now. It's been an exciting start to the second half of the season. And I think that's sort of just setting a tone for what could be coming for the rest of the year. I know Aaron Judge made things pretty fun so far. Um, The NL East is getting sort of exciting. Other divisions are getting exciting as well. Uh, we had Hall of Fame. We have pitchers who are flying under the radar. There's so much to get into this week. Absolutely. So many things. I'm excited to talk about a pitcher you just got to see up close very recently in Dylan Cease. And, you know, one thing we managed to accidentally not do last week was mention Shohei Otani. So we will be sure... To remind everybody yet again how wonderful Shohei Otani is, how impressive everything he does really truly is. So I'm really excited for this one. And yeah, of course, All-Star break is kind of on its own level. But you know what? The amazing thing about baseball is that this episode will be just as exciting to me. And I'm really excited to talk about Hall of Fame about all of the players who got to go in, David Ortiz on the writer's ballot and all of the uh, individuals who got in on the game era committees, and also Tim Kirkjian, who I got a chance to work with at ESPN, going in with the BBWAA Career Excellence Award. I mean, there's just so much to talk about. I think all of this is so exciting. I cannot wait to hear your stories from being able to go to support Tim. Um, Let's just start with Judge. Let's get right into the meat of this because... My goodness, I, I know that we were prepping for this a little bit. And by prepping, it's like three minutes of texting about what we're most excited about in baseball this week and then being like, OK, this sounds great. Um, I quickly I just had a peek at judges numbers because I don't look at them every single day, obviously, because I'm looking at a thousand different things every single day. But you always know what's going on. You know what's catching the headlines. You see Twitter blowing up whenever things happen. You see him hit his 37th home run. So you're like, oh my goodness, here he goes again. I wanted to specifically look at his numbers. And I think my exact text to you when I look at them, looked at them was, this is stupid. I think that's what I called it. Um, they are ridiculous. And I think what's most impressive about this all is today's hitter, which is very opposite from what, what I watch every night, is... The boomer bust, you hit the the long ball, you strike out a lot. But you're an exciting player nonetheless because the home run is the most exciting play in baseball. And so when he can provide that day in and day out, it's fun. His OPS is through the roof, all of those types of things. But when you are this type of player, so often your average does dip a little bit more. Um, and I know in today's game, average isn't a big deal. Uh But I have that old school mindset to me a little bit where average kind of still matters to me and I do prioritize it. So when you have this type of guy who's putting together this type of season with these power numbers and is still floating right around 300, that's when it's really impressive for me. Absolutely. And, you know, that isn't something that Aaron Judge did quite as much early in his career. When he hit 52 homers in 17, 
when he set at the time the rookie record before uh, P. Alonso broke it two, two years later. He hit 284, so I guess not that far from where he is now, but you didn't get that sense that this was a guy who was also getting a lot of hits, and I feel like that's kind of what stood out this weekend in Baltimore. He got on the board, hit a couple of home runs, looks a lot better than he did in the series prior to the All-Star break. And it wasn't just the homers. He got a lot of hits overall. But as you said, I mean, his numbers are insane. I like to look at StatCast pages. If you take a look at hits, average exit velocity, max exit velocity, hard hit rate, expected weight on base, expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, and barrel rate. He is literally in the 100th percentile in all of those, except expected batting average, where where he's in the 96th. So he is really, really good at hitting the ball hard. We talk about this a lot. Hitting the ball hard does matter. When you make hard contact, you're going to hit close to 500 and slug in the 900s. This is why Aaron Judge is so good. And of course, for him, taking away the stack ass stuff, I think what the Yankees fans really have an eye on beyond the postseason, World Series, all of that, is whether he can break that Yankee record. Roger Maris, of course, in 1961, hit 61 home runs. That was the record for a while. It was considered an asterisk because at the time there was a longer season that Babe Ruth has had. We've come a long way since that being an asterisk item, but regardless, he is currently Aaron Judge on pace as of this taping for 62 home runs. And I don't think we can overstate how much that would matter in the annals of Yankee history and how much it would matter even to fans now, even young fans. I think people are aware of that. And for him to potentially break that record and for him to hit 60 homers, I mean, we haven't seen that in a while. Well, let me tell you, I can say right now that if he sticks to this type of a pace, it might make my MVP vote a little bit easier this year. So uh, feel free, Judge. Feel free to go ahead and just take that away from me and uh, take that stress off of me to make this uh, an easy decision. But I mean, it, that 62, I, that's just a ridiculous number. Could you imagine being able to watch that type of a season? I know we talk about it all the time that I, I love rooting for no hitters. I love like these types of things happening that... You get to say that you witnessed history and to see a 62 homer season, to see him continually, I mean, I'm sure at that pace, he'll have an OPS over a thousand to end the year to probably lead the league in RBIs and stay on track with the homers. I mean, it's going to be really, really impressive. And I know over the last year, we've talked so much about Otani being so impressive. This is, this is really some eye-catching stuff. This is really eye-catching. But I also want to remind everybody that Shohei Otani has 20 homers this year. He is not doing what he did last year, but he still has 20 homers. And he is a better pitcher than he was last year. 280 ERA at the time of this taping. Handful of strikeouts, striking out 12.9 batters per nine. He had a great start in Atlanta. Uh, a couple nights ago, and then the seventh inning kind of fell apart. I I mean, I am glad I am not in your shoes having to make that decision for MVP, though I'm sure, and I hope I will be in some roundtables about it on MLB.com. I would say the way Judge is doing what he's doing, he's making it easier for everybody. But again, Weekly reminder that Shohei Otani, I'm starting his page right now, we're looking at batting. He's in the 90th percentile in barrel rate as a hitter. He is in the 94th percentile in expected ERA and in whiff rate and 98th in strikeout rate as a pitcher. He hits the ball really hard. He throws the ball by everybody. He gets a lot of swings and misses. 
is almost unfair to make this comparison because these are just totally different types of players. But Aaron Judge is on an incredible pace. And I wrote in our doc where we prepare that I have a secret fun stat that I said is tangential. Yeah, I'm related. sitting here. I'm just like sitting on the edge of my seat waiting for us to just get to that. I'm trying to pretend like, yeah, yeah, I'm really interested. But no, but in the back of my head, I'm like, let's get to the secret fun stat. So I looked into this last night because uh, Joe Musgrove no hit the Mets through four innings. And, you know, I was getting ready. OK, if he gets through five, the Mets offense hasn't looked great. At times lately, I wonder where they rank among teams to be no-hit through five the most this year. So I go ahead, I run that, and I learned that the Yankees have been no-hit through five innings seven times this year, Hmm. which is two more than any other team. Huh. And they have Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. And as you said, Judge is hitting for average as well. I just thought this was crazy. It's not a commentary on Judge, but I no. thought it was the wildest thing. And I was like, you know, we're talking Yankees offense. And by the way, it's two more than any other team. The next team is the Pirates. Like, that, that, that makes, makes sense. sense to me, <laughs> right? And then you have the Giants and the Angels who struggled offensively. But the Yankees seven times, and by the way, Does that not tell you everything you need to know about how good the Yankees are? They don't need a hit in the first five innings to beat you. Yeah, because I was going to say, I'm thinking of that, and I'm like, I wonder how many of those games they ended up winning because they had like X number of consecutive innings this year at some point that they were held hitless. And it looked like they were going to be held hitless again, and then all of a sudden they came back and won I think it was one of those that would have been through five and it's just ridiculous because it just shows how threatening this lineup is like you were just sort of alluding to that if they don't get a hit in the first five innings who cares because they can do whatever they want in just one inning and I think that getting back to judge specifically shows how much weight he carries because he's the heartbeat of this lineup and he can carry them no matter what the situation is. And that can help his maybe weight and stock in this MVP type of a race, knowing how important he is to this team, knowing that they leaned on him so much in different times like this, where we're saying that they had been no hit through five so often. They won three of those games. That's Mm -hmm. really impressive. No hit through five, came back, won the game. And again, we could go on and on about the Yankee offense for an entire podcast. Uh, But let's move on. Let's stay in the the East, but we'll go to the National League. The NL East is really narrowing. So the Mets had a ten and a half game lead entering. That's ridiculous. uh, Entering the month of June. And as of our recording, the lead is a game and a half for the Mets. Mets are, of course, heading into a two-game subway series with the Yankees, which will be the first time ever that the Mets and Yankees meet when they're both in outright possession, first place in their divisions. But this has been teetering. For a very long time. And this is not the Mets blowing a lead. This is the Braves have been really good. Michael Harris II came up. He has been so good and so important to that team. If you look at the Braves, they've been one of the best teams in baseball since June 1st. He made his debut on May 28th. It's very much related to that that dynamic outfielder. But the thing that stands out to me is this 10-game lead. So I write a story for MLB.com every month of, hey, here's what it means to be in first place entering this month. So, you know, in a few days I'll write, here's the percentage of division leaders on the morning of August 1st who went on to win that division. As you go through the months, of course, it gets more and more likely. But the thing I wrote about in June, entering June, 
was about how the Mets were among just a handful of teams to lead by at least 10 entering the month of June. And the fact that each of those teams went on to win that division. So based off of that, I started looking before the All-Star break because the Mets played the Braves. There was a series where it seemed like they could lose that division lead. So since 1969, since we've had division, there have only been, I should have counted them before I told you the stat, huh? No, I think it's more fun to put you on the spot and we all sit here and play the Jeopardy music until it happens. Here we go. There have been seven teams to have a 10 or more game lead at any point in the season. And Hmm. then at a later date in that season, another team either tied them or overtook them. Huh. So these are teams to lose a 10-game lead. Yeah. So the 1978 Red Sox, 1979 Astros, 93 Giants, 95 Angels, 06 Tigers, 2012 Yankees, and 2019 Twins. So of that list, only the final two teams I said, the 2012 Yankees and the 2019 Twins, still won that division. So getting overtaken doesn't automatically mean you've lost it before these other teams, other than the two most recent, it did end up meaning that. And those last two teams are also the only teams to do all of this in a two-month span. So Mm -hmm. lead by at least 10 and lose that lead in 60 days, which would happen to the Mets if they were to lose their lead before, before August 2nd. I remember that 19 Twins debacle because... It was obviously Cleveland um, that I would have been covering. That was my first year. And it was right around the time they learned the Carlos Carrasco diagnosis that he had leukemia. And the team just completely rallied behind that. It was unbelievable. They went on the hottest stretch that I've seen still so far since I started covering them. Um, And by the end of August, all of a sudden they were in it and they had taken the lead and it was only a hot second that they really had taken the lead and then they fell back um and then I remember at the end of the year doing all of the weird playoff puzzle format of what city will I be in if there's a three-way tie for all of this stuff because it was like team A could play team B or team A could be playing team C and I could go from DC to Tampa to Oakland to Houston. And I'm like packing 8,000 things for every possible city that I could be in. And then it ended up that they just fell apart at the end anyway. And I went home and had about 17 days extra uh, clothes that I didn't need. But um, it's crazy how quick that can happen. It's crazy how quick things can turn. And we're sort of seeing that right now in the NL East. And I think it, it makes it fun. I mean, Imagine being an Atlanta fan right now watching this, watching this full court press be put on. Um, It's still a little early, not tremendously early anymore as we're getting into trade deadline time and we're getting into August. It's not as early as it was, but it's still a little bit early. Things, so many things can happen, but you sort of have those feelings like, remember, I'm going to just come up with things that I remember and you're going to fact check them and tell me that every date that I have is wrong, but that's fine. I'm here to just remember things and you're here to be perfect. So we'll just keep that. Uh, The Nationals, remember, they started off like ridiculously slow. And that was the year they won the World Series. I want to say that was 19. Am I right? Is that 19? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. I'm like, why am I forgetting every year? COVID seems like it was one year and it's been like three years now. So Um, yeah, so like you think about how slow they started the season and then they come the whole way back and they put on this insane run to come the entire way back and win the World Series. Imagine how fun it would have been to be a Nationals fan that year. You obviously had the whole baby shark thing going throughout the ballpark, which that was fun in itself. Um, But it's sort of that same feeling right now where you have like this underdog type feeling of how far out of it the Braves were and now here they come charging back. And I think that would be ridiculously fun to be watching as a fan. So the Nationals in 2019 were 19 and 31 through 50 games. It was the worst 50 game stretch 
uh, sort, excuse me, for any eventual World Series champion ever. <laughs> and I remember the next year, it was during COVID, but on May 23rd, which was the day they lost actually to the Mets to fall to 1931. They made a big deal on social media, like happy 1931 day, like <laughs> the entire social media team for the Nats who do a great job, uh, really embraced the idea of like, you know, we know we were in a bad place. They did one of those uh, in spring train 2020 before everything shut down. They did the uh, Jimmy Kimmel style mean tweets or is that Fallon? Yes. Whoever it is. Kimmel, you um, had it. See, I can fact where, check on the reality stuff. You can fact check on my baseball stats. We're good there. Yeah. Go ahead. And uh, they were reading like they had Davey reading like, oh, they should fire the manager. Oh, they're awful. Zimmerman can't hit all of these things, and it's like, hey, this team won the World Series. But to the point about the Braves, I mean, they've done this before. Last year, they became the first team to not even be above 500 until August, or they had Mm -hmm. the latest date going above 500 of any eventual World Series winner. And it's interesting, last year was the deadline acquisitions. Eddie Rosario, Jorge Soler, who ended up Mm -hmm. being postseason MVPs for them in the NLCS and the World Series. And I really think this year it's Michael Harris II as kind of that driving force. You know, Acuna came back and he's a great player, but it's a lot to come back from a torn ACL. So he hasn't necessarily been that spark plug, but it's been okay because Michael Harris II is crushing the ball, playing outstanding defense and giving them a really, really good defensive outfield. So I'm actually going to write about him for MLB.com later this week and write Ooh. about how his their turnaround or their resurgence has really been traced to him. So it's going to be fascinating to see how the division pans out. And I don't want Mets fans to be upset. They have a great team. They're pitching. They're about to get the biggest trade deadline acquisition ever in Jacob deGrom. We don't know exactly when he's coming back, but it sounds like very soon. If you're not aware, he hasn't pitched since early July of 2021, dealing with a stress reaction as right scapula. I think I did that from memory correctly. He's had some injuries, and he is back in his minor league rehab starts, throwing 100 We'll see exactly what he does, but we've never seen a, I mean, I'm laughing, think about this rotation with Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom. I mean, it's not fair, just not fair. So we're giving the Braves a lot of credit, but the Mets, their issues are offensive and we'll see what they do at the trade deadline. But there is no question that first of all, Their pitching has done an outstanding job holding down the fort. Scherzer was also hurt for a bit. And with DeGrom not pitching yet this year, but I mean, flushing that first time DeGrom sets foot on the city field mound again this year with his team either in first place or very close to it. I mean, that is going to be a sight to see. Yeah. And I think that just this division getting closer in general is just going to make that even more exciting for both sides of it. I know Mets fans would much rather have the 10 plus game lead. I'm sure they would breathe a little bit easier, but it does bring a lot of intensity into each game um, for both sides of it. So I think this could be fun how this plays out. We'll take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we can get into some more specific people. I think it'll be interesting to look at Dylan Cease a little bit closer just because he wasn't part of the all-star game yet. His numbers tell you he should have been. And we can get some stories from Sarah from her quick trip to Cooperstown to uh, celebrate Tim Kirchin and, of course, talk a little bit about Big Poppy. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardians beat reporter for MLB.com and Sarah Langs, researcher and reporter for MLB.com as well. And we just talked a whole bunch about how impressive Aaron Judge has been, all about how exciting this NL East division could end up being when we maybe didn't necessarily think that not too long ago. Um, And now I think it's important to focus in on someone who's been flying a little bit more under the radar, surprisingly so, because someone in Dylan Cease, I know that it's probably easier to fly under the radar when your team has been such a disappointment as much as the White Sox have been this year. There were so many high standards for what they could be this season. I know that They were definitely at least supposed to be above the Guardians uh, in the rankings and the Guardians were supposed to be very much at the bottom and all of this has been playing out where they are not playing up to what their potential should be on paper. And so when you're disappointing, having a disappointing run like that, it's easier to fly under the radar, but we need to bring light to what Dylan Cease is doing because he can still be really in the thick of this Cy Young race if he continues to pitch the way he's pitched so far. Um, And I think Tito sort of said it the best whenever we were there uh, over the weekend. I just got to watch him pitch on Sunday and and Tito was saying afterwards, I think I'll read his exact quote because it's easiest to go with that. He said, I'll tell you what, man, I'm still trying to figure out how that kid didn't make the all-star team. He's one of the best pitchers in the game. He didn't quite have the wipeout slider today that he had the other day, thank goodness, but he's still a handful. Um, And he said it perfectly because I'm sitting there watching this guy. I'm looking at his numbers. Um, He's sitting right around a two ERA, and I'm thinking, how the heck did he get overlooked for the all-star game? You know, uh, this is one of those moments where if you tweeted out that exact quote, I would just quote tweet and say, research confirms. Yep. That slider has been so good. And I know it wasn't, as Tito said, the end-all be-all the other day, but he has 196 strikeouts on his slider. That is 32 more strikeouts than any other pitcher has on any other pitch type this year. Mm -hmm. That is just on another level. And if you go to run value, which sort of takes into account when and how you use the pitch, what counts, all that, best run value in baseball, he gets a ton of swings and misses. Again, all of those strikeouts on, uh, I'm sorry, the 196 is with swings and misses. My bad. He also has the most strikeouts. 196 strikeouts on the slider did sound a little far-fetched, but I didn't think that through. <laughs> uh, but he has both the most strikeouts and the most swings and misses. He also has, like, an A-grade mustache. Like, I don't know yeah. if we mentioned that, where that sure. goes on the voting, but, like, we need to point that out as well. I, it certainly doesn't hurt his case. We'll make sure we, we throw that in there. Um, I don't I don't know how he wasn't part of the All-Star game because you think of the best of the best. I'd be curious if somehow he goes uh, and continues this or and figures out maybe even how to get better from here despite probably not having the best run support and not having the most successful team around him. And the a lot of outside speculation and drama of what should happen with his manager, um, excluding all of that, if he can figure out how to get better and have ridiculous numbers and find his way into the Cy Young conversation, I'd be interested to know how many Cy Young winners were not All-Stars that, there that season, how many Cy Young maybe even top three finalists weren't even in the all-star game because I'm sure it can't be that many. Uh, I know the all-star game hasn't been around forever, but uh, it would be, it would be interesting because 
you have to have a complete season to be able to be a, a Cy Young winner. You can't just get hot in the second half and then take it home. You really have a complete season. And to have that overlooked midway through the year is really mind boggling to me. The last guy I think of, and it's just off the top of my head, was actually Blake Snell in 2018. Mm-hmm. But he was added last minute. But I remember it was a big deal because even at the time, most people thought he'd win the Cy Young and he was not initially an all-star. But to your point, it doesn't happen that much. I'm writing it down. I'm writing down top three Cy Young, not all-star because I'm going to research it later. Is this a live random question time right now? I think this is is, what this is. But it's one I'm going to have to do later because it'll take a bit. But if the answer is uh, interesting, we'll bring it back to you guys next week. See, this is what happens with us. (laughs) This is like we just get into conversation and then my brain is weird and I just start coming up with random things. (laughs) And then I slack Sarah just the words random question time and give her a list of homework assignments that I don't know and am not smart enough to figure out. Um, So luckily I have her to get every answer that I could ever need. So that was the live version of the random question time (laughs) that she now has an assignment for later. Um, So go ahead and continue your thoughts. Sorry about that. One other thing (laughs) I want to say about Cease is just, you know, I think that people who are really deep into pitching in the game, Mm -hmm. who really keep an eye on guys' stuff and what they have beneath the results I think that they have all been waiting for this breakout from Dylan Cease and known that it was there beneath the surface. You know, I think of my colleague um, on our sort of research team, David Adler at MLB.com. We do stories before the year. We pick a breakout Cy Young candidate, breakout this, breakout that. And I feel like Dylan Cease was his go-to for anything pitcher-related for like the last two years. And whenever I see Cease go out and pitch well, I think, yeah, I mean, Adler knew it. And Adler is really smart. So this makes total sense to me. But if you look at that slider you can see how that was coming. And he had a year, I mean, he had a 579 ERA in 2019, 401 in 2020 in the shortened season. It wasn't necessarily immediately, obviously, there. But I think a lot of people knew beneath the surface, if you looked at the actual composition of his pitches, especially that breaking pitch, that this could come out of there for him. Yep. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how he continues it. And I think it's even more fascinating for me whenever there's pitchers who are on teams that aren't true contenders and they're able to have standout seasons like the way that he's doing right now. And I'll be interested to see if he can continue that and have that play out for him for the entirety of the season and have him in this conversation at the end of the year. But I do want to get into this Hall of Fame talk because I know I can't tell if you're still wearing the shirt, but I know you had it on earlier. Yep. You're still wearing the shirt. You have your Team Tim shirt on because you went to Cooperstown briefly. I'm sure you had like all of 45 minutes of sleep after we got back from the All-Star break. And then you immediately hit a get on a bus and drive up to Cooperstown to go see your good friend Tim Kirch and to be able to wish him well in his induction into the Hall of Fame, which is so neat. Um, before we even get into Big Poppy, I just want to hear about your experience turning around in like a quick day trip uh, to be able to pop up there and see him quick. So for anyone who doesn't know, I used to work at ESPN. I was the researcher on Baseball Tonight for three years, and that's when I got to know Tim Kirkton. And of course, being the researcher, I was, you know, one of his go-to people um, along with my peers in terms of, you know, Tim always has a question. Often it was, hey, I think this is true. Can you check? It was always true. Or it was a question, uh, hey, can we look into X, Y, Z? And, you know, everybody knows his love of the game, his outstanding ideas. And, you know, it was definitely one of those moments. I mean, everyone I got to work with there was kind of just pinch me moments for me of like, 
Are they really asking me questions? Am I really giving them information to say on air? And certainly as a researcher, working with Tim and Jason Stark was kind of on another level because those are the two, I mean, the two godfathers of baseball research <laughs> in its current form now. You know, obviously we have, you know, sabermetrics and John Thorne and all of that. But the way we think of research now is Jason and Tim. So I was very excited when we were in L.A. to be asked by uh, Kelly Carey, who is a wonderful production manager at ESPN. Hey, we're going to all uh, we're going to rent a bus and go up to Cooperstown on Saturday to surprise him before his speech. We're going to have to get there at 6 a.m. to get to Cooperstown by 11, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, I'm in. I'll make it work. For Tim, of course. And Kelly, who is Tim, always tells Kelly we'd all be dead without Kelly. And I don't necessarily disagree. She's in charge of all logistics, everything. She had all said she coordinated with Tim's wife, Kathy, and his daughter, Kelly. And... We ended up with hats and t-shirts that said Team Tim. We show up, he walked in, and he started crying. I mean, it was he was surprised. He had no idea we were all coming up. There were a couple people he knew would be there for a speech later in the day, but he had no idea we were doing this lunch beforehand. And, you know, I was just so honored to get a chance to tell him for the millionth time how much his, you know, mentorship and and friendship has meant to me. And it's just so wonderful to see someone so revered for how much he loves the game. Because that's one of the things that was mentioned many times in a, a piece that Carl Ravish did for SportsCenter on ESPN and Baseball Tonight. He talked about, you know, nobody loves the game more. And I think of you and I and how we sit here every week and basically just talk about how much we love baseball for 45 minutes. <laughs> that is the legacy of Tim, that people talk about that. And people think that others will care about that. I mean, Tim has shown us that that really does resonate. So, I mean, I am so, so honored to know him, so proud of him, so happy for him and his entire family. And it was so wonderful to get to see him before uh, his big speech. That's awesome. I mean, that's so special to be able to share that with him, to be able to be there. Um it's it's really really cool and I and I only know him through you just through the stories that you tell. He seems like an incredible person. He seems like I mean obviously if he's close with you then he's got to be. And so I know that I know that this was a really meaningful weekend for you, for him, for all of it. So I'm glad you were able to be part of it. I'm glad that uh it all went to plan. And it's so cool to be able to have it be sort of around the same year that a legend like David Ortiz gets thrown in there. Um, and how exciting that had to have been to have these types of legends be all surrounding that whole weekend. It would have been so incredible. And you just think of Big Poppy and what he's meant to baseball. You think about, I, I mean, I'm obviously with Terry Francona all the time who managed him and, uh, I know throughout my time in Cleveland, he's mentioned Big Poppy all the time, just in passing. It's just like that threat of having him in the lineup was always so fun. How honored he was to be able to write his name in the lineup day in and day out. Um, I know he talked about how he and Manny Ramirez like to have both of them and trying to determine, okay, who's hitting third, who's hitting fourth. It was just like a flip of a coin. You could, you just were spoiled in that way. Um, but every time that Tito's asked about Big Poppy is just, it always comes back to the smile. And he always talked about like when Fran Mel Reyes first came to Cleveland, he said, he gives me the vibes a little bit of David Ortiz, which one, geez, what a compliment. And two, um, it's just that, yeah, seriously. It's just that he always says it's that big smile, that infectious personality. And I think it's even more fun when you're remembered for those types of things and how special you mean to the game by your personality not only just his ridiculous numbers that I know that you have all listed out in front of us here too. I do. And, you know, 
Mandy and I were texting last night, and I was saying, you know, I mean, I'll toss his numbers into the dock, but for me, Big Poppy is just, first of all, a signal or a token of my childhood. I mean, so much of my really learning about the game, learning the history, learning about a 3-0 comeback in 04, all of that <laughs> traces to him. And I didn't grow up a Red Sox fan. It's not specifically that. But I think if you're a baseball fan in a certain era, unless you were a Yankees fan, I suppose, you were a big Poppy fan. And he's just the type of personality and energy that can mean so much to so many people. And of course, you get into the Hall of Fame for your numbers and 10-time All-Star, three-time World Series champ, World Series MVP, ALCS MVP, seven-time Silver Slugger. But I think more than anything, I sort of think of when you watch him come to the plate in a key moment in a postseason game or a key moment in the ninth inning of a regular season game down the stretch, did that feel like a Hall of Famer? And the answer is a resounding yes. So it's very cool for me to see players who, as I mentioned, I watch, I mean, he is a player whose entire career I can remember. And seeing him get into the Hall of Fame, I mean, we're young and somehow we're old now. But it's <laughs> really cool to be able to identify with the sport in that way and remember, oh, I went to this Red Sox game with my mom. We saw a Hall of Famer in that game. I went to this game with my grandmother. We saw a Hall of Famer, you know, hit that home run, whatever it is. Well, now that I feel old, um, I'll continue. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I agree with you. It's really cool. It's cool to start seeing players from like our childhood get through there. I, we saw Jeter last year. We saw Big Poppy now this year. It's really, really cool um, to be able to reach this point um, and, and start seeing some of the legends from our childhoods get recognized for the impact that they had on the game. I just want to note uh, the other inductees as well. Yes. You know, we only have so much time. This podcast is an extension of our constant conversations, but we can't record forever. But I do want to mention uh, there were also the Golden Days and Early Baseball Era Committee inductees, Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, Bud Fowler, Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, and Buck O'Neill, all of which very well-deserving and we could do a whole separate podcast, but I wanted to make sure uh, that we put their names out there as well. We really didn't think about it, but this is the perfect setup to get us into our segment of our favorite thing from happening in the past week on or off the field that we saw on social media. I still need to narrow mine down, so we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and we will share our favorite moments from baseball in this past week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fun fact, my mom actually just sent me an Instagram DM that I think I'm using for my <laughs> favorite thing. Shout out, mom. Okay. That's amazing. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardian's beat reporter for MLB.com, and Sarah Lang's reporter and researcher for MLB.com as well. And as I just alluded to before the break, we're going to get into our fa favorite segment uh, about what happened in baseball this week that sort of took our eye on social media, whether it be on the field, off the field. So many involved cute moments with children and, and uh, funny moments that happen between players. 
always our favorite things because we're always sending these back and forth to each other. So it's nice to have a place where we actually can share them with yes. other people and not just us and live in our text message threads. So <laughs> do you have one this week? I know I let you cheat last week and get to like two or three. So maybe we can get to one. <laughs> yeah, I had to, but I'll go with one. <laughs> so my one was Max Scherzer, who we discussed earlier, past uh, Bob Gibson and Kurt Schilling on the all-time strikeouts list on Friday night. Mm -hmm. And he was asked about, you know, what it means to pass a legend like Bob Gibson on the strikeout list after the game. And just some background before I read the quote, which was amazing, is that he is from, uh, he's from Missouri, grew up a Cardinals fan, uh, Max Scherzer went to Mizzou. So there is obviously going to be some additional emotional level to passing not just anyone, but Bob Gibson. So he said, that was my dad's favorite pitcher. I'm definitely going to give that ball to him. For me, as a kid, growing up, he was one of my idols. I did book reports on him left and right. I know so much of his career and what he meant to the St. Louis Cardinals organization. Obviously, what he meant to my dad and to me. To pass him, that's a huge thing for me personally. I wanted to cry when I saw this quote. This is why we're here. I'm here because my mom feels that way about Willie Mays. My dad feels that way about Roberto Clemente. And none of us got a chance to pass either of them in any notable stats. But I'm here because my mom will always go on and on about Willie Mays and how she's shocked that he only had one career four-homer game. Keep in mind, nobody has ever had two of those, but, you know, <laughs> Willie Mays. So to be Max Scherzer... And to have such a storied Hall of Fame career already, he's the World Series champion, he's won all of his Cy Youngs, but to be able to have a moment like that, call his dad up after the game and say, hey, did you see who I passed today? I mean, it's just incredible. It's why this game is so great. And I just thought it was perfect. And he had such a good awareness of the moment, the way he presented his words there. So I, I love this. It is so heartwarming and so wonderful. What do you have? Well, next time, tell me whenever yours is like so deep so I can go first and I don't have to follow that because now mine seems really dumb. Um, I'll try to follow that. Uh, so mine's a little funnier, I guess, and not as serious. Um, I I am a little dorky. Uh, I think a little is a little bit of an understatement. I'm pretty dorky. Uh, I'm a big... This is going to sound strange, but I'm a big Jim Cantori fan from the Weather Channel. Um, enormous Jim Cantori fan. Uh, uh, my dad's obsessed with weather stuff. So I always grew up sort of in that realm of following weather people. Um, but I've always loved Jim Cantori because the love that he has for his job. Anyone who loves their job as much as like Sarah Langs loves her job is my type of person. Um, and if you ever want to see if he really loves his job, if you ever look up Jim Cantori out watching, uh, thunder, uh, thunder snow, trying to capture that, it is like the greatest thing that you'll ever see. There's no one who's more passionate about his job in that moment. My favorite thing is his, his relationship with Mike Trout. I don't know if you've ever seen this yeah. because Mike Trout is trying to be a weather weenie himself, which is very funny. Um, he always tweets about weather stuff like he's super into it super into it and these two have tweeted back and forth at each other many times because of this um Cantori's a huge baseball fan Trout's obviously a big weather guy apparently Cantori just I think today gave him a, a tour of the Weather Channel studios oh my so, gosh incredible absolutely incredible he That's posted incredible. all of these pictures of Trout standing in front of the green screen where they have uh, all the maps get put up the, behind them for the weathermen. Um, so Trout standing there on the green screen, they're showing all the different backdrops that they put up behind him um, that he could do. It was really, really cool. Uh, 
And then I think they also flipped the script and then Trout brought uh, Cantori out for a game as well, um, which is so cool. This relationship to me is awesome because I love baseball and I love Jim Cantori. Um, (laughs) But I think it's really, really funny to see their interests off the field because they're all humans and we forget that. We think that they just eat, sleep, and uh, 100% do baseball all the time. And they do, but he also has these other hobbies everyone ha- has other hobbies and the fact that he was able to tour the weather channel studios was incredible i think that's so funny so not as sentimental and um meaningful as yours but i can fangirl a little bit over jim cantori <laughs> i love that and also to make you feel better i almost went with uh, lourdes Guriel jr putting together a fruit cocktail in the yes. Blue Jays dugout at Fenway Park in the game that the Al Blue Jays won 28-5 to over the Red Sox. So, you know, I was also going for the uh, the whimsy. The, that was my backup, honestly, when you sent nice. that to me. I thought that was incredible until, shout out, my mom literally sent me this Cantori thing as we were recording this podcast so that I could bring it up now because – they obviously know how obsessed with Cantori I am. So this was like a match made in heaven for me. But yes, that one was also um, a really, really funny moment from this week. I mean, what are you supposed to do? You're up by like 30 runs. Might as well make a fruit cocktail. That was uh You're hungry. Yeah, you know. that was great. So yes, uh, obviously a lot of great stuff again from this week. Not as many all-star memories uh, this week as uh, we had the week before, but always my favorite segment. Can't wait to see what happens in this next week. Um, but I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. Please don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying this show or have any suggestions for us at all, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we will see you again next week. Bye.